We're the O'Fallons. I'm Dennis, and, and this is Sharon. Today, we celebrate the third Sunday of Advent. We are lighting the Magi candle, and it reminds us that Jesus came to be the only wise king of the universe. Legend tells us that the gift of the Magi, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, had very symbolic but also practical uses. The incense was a symbol of royalty. The gold may have been used to help the young family flee from Herod into Egypt. And myrrh was used in embalming, a foreshadowing of his death. <clears throat> Our reading this morning is from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least of the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When Mary saw the star, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I believe it, Ken. I believe it, Ken. That little flame was working hard, wasn't it? Great job. Thank you so much for that reading and lighting. It's not easy to do. You think the reading's the hard part in public. It's the lighting, isn't it? Because the, the thing is, because of nerves, it's going like this. And you're like, then we've got two buttons to push. You got one with your thumb and your finger. And it's like, why can't they just invent the one click? Everything's a safety thing these days. Like we can't take care of ourselves anymore. Good morning. Almost Merry Christmas to you. I, um, I, I recognize that we are not doing traditional Christmas messages during the Advent season as of yet. 
Um, but I, the clock is ticking because I, I promised those of you that were willing to go on this journey, I could get you a new family by Christmas. So I know that, you know, the time's running out here. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. And I want to move a little bit quickly through the material that we have this morning, but trying not to run over the intent of the original writer of our scriptures that we're studying together this morning. So I'm encouraging you to listen quickly with me, but at the same time, remind me once in a while, hey, Brent, take a breath, you know, kind of give it one of these, kind of, like, yeah, just, and I'll, I'll relax and just feeling a little bit of that pressure with the time crunch. Well, as we've been talking about, uh, that the Lord would give us new families, not by replacing the people, but replacing the hearts of the people in the family. Because we are giving ourselves more over to the Lord's leading and adopting the principles that have been in place uh, in his coming from his heart from before even the creation of mankind and getting back to those things rather than listening to the voice of culture all the time and, and adjusting or conducting ourselves in our family environments the way that we perhaps always have or the way that we're hearing the experts tell us we need to and that kind of thing. What does the Lord say about these things? Well, now we come to, we've, we've beat up on husbands, we've beat up on wives a little bit and everything. Now we're going to talk about what this parental relationship is supposed to look like as well as the relationship of kids back towards their parents. Somebody once said the trouble with being a parent is that by the time you have sufficient experience, you're already unemployed, which is true. This morning, though, in my little bit hurried pace, though, I do want you to hear that God cares deeply about your families. It matters greatly to the Lord how this whole thing goes for you. Sometimes we forget that he cares. Sometimes we forget that he's paying attention. Sometimes we forget that he hears your cries and your heartaches. Because it seems as though those are the closest to us hurt us the most. Or the ones that we claim to love the most, we end up hurting the most. And it's uh, kind of an endless cycle, it seems. Well, the Lord does care for these things. He cares about your blessing. And he cares about his glory. And his glory is made evident when families give themselves over to the Lord and do things his way. Not because they're perfect, but because they're pointing to the one who is. So I submit my words to you this morning, um, especially the ones that aren't coming right from the text this morning. I do submit them as humbly as I can as myself, a flawed father. I have tendencies that get in the way of the things that I would like to have accomplished or the things that I would like to have produced in my parenting of my children. I have kind of workaholic tendencies like so many where I'm often fixating about the things that are going on here in my job and my kids are talking to me and I'm uh-huh, yesing them like crazy only to kind of realize that my head was somewhere else because of solving something going on in the church or the hours that I might spend doing that. I can be selfish with my leisure time when I finally get a break. I want to do the things that I want to do. Sometimes I'm not very creative in my parenting or in my fathering skills, and so I can be a little bit lazy when it comes to those things as well. These are the things that I have to constantly surrender my flesh to because that's who I want to be in my natural state. But I'm a beneficiary of a lineage of parenting. Both my wife and I are beneficiaries of a lineage of parenting that has decided to do better with, than what they were given handed down. 
And so because that's been handed down to me, it's been handed down to my wife. We also take it seriously. We, we look in the mirror and go, we're not going to be perfect at this, but we can do better than even what was handed down to us because we saw our parents do the same thing. And so my aim for you today is to be willing to do better. Whether you're the parent or whether you're the child in this, whether you're the, the kid in the relationship, to do better with what you've been given as a service to the Lord. We live very obviously in a dark time, especially when it comes to this role of raising children and steering them in the right direction and in healthy directions. It's very, very dark in which the, uh, the culture in which we live. So I, I guess what I'm calling you to is kind of like what we talked about with this little candle is get that little flicker going and give it to the Lord. Let him breathe on it to give oxygen to that flame and let that little light shine very, very bright in a dark world around you. So this isn't a call to get perfect at this. This isn't a call of, uh, of, of figuring out your 10 steps and getting them all right. But what is the thing that the Lord might be saying to you today that you can say, I can at least give him that. And that's better than what I was giving him before, or it's better than what I had been given even in my raising. Paul has been calling the church, the, the, the collective believers and followers of Jesus Christ to revolutionary relationships. Even back then in the first century, he was saying, we do things very differently than conventional wisdom. Because Paul is saying that our families are to be a beacon, a, a blinking light, a shining light in a harbor that is full of rocks and treacherous dangers and things. But it's a, it's a blinking light of the gospel saying, you can have safe harbor here. We will navigate you in so that you don't sink the ship. So our families as, as, as gospel believers, as Christ followers, are to shine a light that says, this is how it can be for you if you come and land safely with us. It's not a showy thing like, hey, we've got it better than all of you. We know how to do this so much better or anything. But it's a welcoming in that you too can live in the blessing and the experience that we're having. And this is a needed voice today. As we've stated, it's confusing times to be a parent. Are we supposed to be stricter? Are we supposed to be looser? Are we supposed to expose them to the things going on in the world? Or are we supposed to be isolating them and protecting them from all the things going in the world? What are the answers to those questions? The answer to those questions is yes. Really clear, right? That's my point. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A little measure of this, a little measure of that. It requires great wisdom in which to navigate. Now, my generation coming up, we were the beneficiaries or the recipients of a generation that was saying, probably for the first time in history anywhere, kids don't need to obey their parents. Dr. Spock is a name that many of you of that generation would remember, wrote that incredible bestseller that revolutionized parenting for everybody. He led the way among child-rearing professionals in instructing parents not to discipline their children. He said that doing so would damage their children's ego. Well, later in his life, he realized that he had made a mistake. Remember we said over the last couple of weeks that we are giving ourselves over to whatever is a temporary fashion or fad that this generation keeps saying we finally figured out what you're supposed to do, but we haven't given enough time to figure out what the consequences are and we're investing in it wholeheartedly before knowing what's going on. This is what Spock said about his own 
life's work and revolutionary um, thoughts on parenting. He says, actually, we've reared a generation of brats. Parents aren't firm enough with their children for fear of losing their love or incurring their resentment. This is a cruel deprivation that we professionals, I give him credit for acknowledging this, have imposed on mothers and fathers. Of course, we did it with the best of intentions. Well, doesn't that fix it all, right? We didn't realize it until it was too late or how our know-it-all attitude was undermining the self-assurance of parents. See, this is why we come back to an ancient text. We need steady, reliable wisdom wisdom over shifting cultural experiments. Our families matter too much to the Lord for us to be led around by the nose and going through these experimental procedures. We need determination as God's people to do what is needed for our families rather than giving into what we so often do, which is what is convenient or what seems like wisdom in the moment only to come back and bite us. What I'm hoping that you'll see in our text this morning is that biblical parenting is fueled more by mission, mission for God's ways, mission for God's glory, than it is any kind of parenting method or tips or techniques that we so desperately crave, which sells millions and millions and millions of books. It's all about methods, very rarely about mission. So we come to our text this morning. We've moved now into Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read just the first four verses together. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Isn't it interesting that he's addressing kids before parents? Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I believe it's our opportunity in adherence with this passage to demonstrate the blessing that is the family. God's instituted order of family is meant and is given to us, given to societies to be a blessing. It's very clear from scripture that that God intended this to be a good thing rather than what we've so often made it or referred to it as. So many examples in the scripture, so many passages of scripture talk about God as a father and his blessings on his children and all those kinds of things. But even mankind at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, where Eve was acknowledging that my children are given to me as a blessing of the Lord, even when one was taken away because one of their sons murdered the other, which is really like a bad track record for your parenting, right? Like you're the first parents on the earth and 50% of them. I've already been taken out by the, the temper tantrum of the other one. So then she's blessed with another son. She has Seth and she says, the Lord has heard my, my cry. He's, he's looked down in favor of me. He's given me another opportunity with this. And he's a blessing to me that even in the midst of that heartache and pain, she recognizes, but family is still a blessing. Leah, after having been overlooked, if you will, or dismissed in love by Jacob because he was more after his, her sister. She was always the consolation prize. Acknowledged that as the Lord gave her children, she said, the Lord has been favorable to me and he's shown me his heart and his blessing because he's given me a family too. God looked down on her broken heart after being essentially traded in by her husband and blessed her with family. 
In Psalm 127, we know that to, that we are to uh, behold that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And yes, we've made several jokes at the fact that the smalls have a lot of kids. Yes, my quiver has a broken strap because it's so heavy. A lot of arrows in that thing. I, that's the one that always pastors always want to share with me when they're like, you've got nine kids. Well, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it. I lived it. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Culturally speaking, though, we often kind of snicker, sneer at the fact that families are much more of a burden than they are a blessing. One of my adult kids kind of pointed out this sarcastic commercial that came up because, you know, cell phone plans are all about family plans, right? So that you can get more people on one bill and all that sort of stuff. And the latest thing is you can get the deals without needing a family. And so the girl is walking through her house while the family's being a family. It's kind of all chaotic all over the place. And her big point is no family needed for these deals, right? And she's looking like she's just putting up with them and stuff. That's kind of the, the expression of the cultural mindset. We, we have issues in our families and we often look at them as like, well, everyone's got a family, so got to deal with it. God had said to his people back in Exodus 20, he had listed the commandments and the order that he would give, the commandments that would reflect his heart and his character. And the fifth commandment he gave them in Exodus 20 was to honor your father and your mother that your days may go may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. As this commandment is coming to society, even God's own people had abused God's intention for family and they started giving themselves outs that were all kinds of abuses that God would have wanted for the heritage of his people. In other words, they were comfortable saying to their adult parents who are now too old and feeble to produce any income for the family or to take care of themselves, you got to move out now. I mean, can you imagine we're in a society now where it's becoming more and more prevalent to look after our parents and to take care of them in their older ages and things like that. Well, that happened because as a direct result of a gospel culture that has gotten through to us over the generations. But at the time that God said, honor your father and mother, that wasn't a given. They were kicking. Sometimes they were kicking their parents to the curb saying, well, you're not really producing much. You're not you're not carrying your own weight anymore. As though they hadn't done all of that for them as children and provided for them all along. The Romans and Greeks, I think, made it even worse. They had really uh, taken up measures and, and, and laws and practices that destroyed God's design and function of the family. A dad had virtual life and death authority over whether or not he was going to accept a child that that his wife had just given birth. He would stand over this child. If he walked away, it was a sign of dismissal. We're going to move on from this kid. That's not the one I wanted. It's not in the condition that I expected it to be. Or with servants in the household or disobedient children or something. You know, a father in that Roman culture with, with impunity was able to say, uh, I'm unhappy with you. I'm going to dismiss you. I'm going to sell you into slavery. I can even put you to death. Nobody was going to come knocking on his door saying, oh, we heard that you did this, this, and this. We're going to take you down to the station and have some questions for you. That was a father's right. 
Seneca, a statesman at the time of Paul's writing that we've been reading, he summed up their their attitude this way. He said that we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow. Children born weak or deformed were drowned. This is the culture that Paul is talking to a church and saying, we do things differently under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that first place is for us to recognize that families are a blessing, that even if ours is dysfunctional, even if ours has caused us scars and a lot of weight and problems, that God intended for it to be a blessing. And so there's got to be some work that he's still willing and wanting to do through it and in it. I just want to make a couple of quick points before we get to a very practical place with all of this. And the first of which is that the reason why we need to see families as something to be celebrated and protected is because that's who we are. We have been wired to need connection with other human beings. We've seen the result of those who think that that isn't the case. And yes, I understand that within our personality type, some need it less than others and some more than others. But the general rule of thumb here is that you and I have been created to need to be in contact with one another. We're built for relationship. We're built for connection. It's obvious in our nature. It's obvious in the fact that even after these many years and even in this, all this technology that would allow us to separate, what do we do? We still come in a room, hundreds of us, and come together to even do something like celebrating and worshiping the one true God. We crave connection. We desire for it because we are wired that way. And God had had created a family obligation system so that we would always have somebody that we would be connected to. We would have those kind of requirements that we have to take care of one another and that would keep us in close proximity to one another. We need the presence of others in our lives. And I know I'm saying things that even as I was writing it down, I was like, this seems really obvious. But if we look around society, it's not, right? We trick ourselves into thinking that that isn't the case. But also what a family does for us is it creates provision, which, of course, we need. Uh, From birth, no child is self-sufficient. I have conversations with my friend Steve once in a while, and he's pointed out, he goes, it's such a terrible litmus test that people put on abortion. Like, if if the life is viable then it's a true human life. If it's not viable, then it's not a true human life. And his point is, what child has ever been able to sustain itself right out of the womb? Every child would be considered an unviable life in the fact that it needs caring for, it needs sustenance, it needs provision. No child is self-sufficient. That's why... Paul told Timothy that he wanted him to have a culture in his church that he was leading, that he was pastoring, to have an expectation among people looking after one another and providing for one another. He says, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. God knows that we are here to provide for one another. And as we said before, we know that our parents will eventually need care too. I say this loud and clear to my adult children in the room. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Because I want a boat. And if I get a boat, then I don't have to worry about my retirement and taking care of myself. So if I get a boat now, they have to take care of me later. Anyway, joking, sort of. 
Parents eventually need our care too. This is what Jesus had said. He was making a point. He was battling with Pharisees. But he uses this to also explain where God's heart is in this matter. The Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up as they always did in an inconsistency. He says, you want to talk inconsistent? He says, you say, this is in Mark 7, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you've gained from me is tithe or is what korban is. It's like a, an offering to the temple. So a, a kid is saying to an adult kid is saying to his parents, I would take care of you, but you know, the requirements of our temple and our, our religious system. And I'm a faithful servant of God. So I don't have anything to give you because I gave what God required of me. He says, whatever you've gained from me is korban that is given to God. Jesus says, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down in many such things you do. Paul and Jesus and so many others and God himself, even all throughout the Old Testament, is making it clear to us that godly people see family provision as a blessing, not a burden. Rather than looking at it as something we have to do, like, like a ball and chain, it's something that we get to do. This is how we can demonstrate as God's people, peculiarly, the blessing of family, even if it's hard work, even if it's difficult to make those ends meet. It's still a blessing to us. Secondly, I would say that we also are being called to demonstrate God's nature, his own character, through the relationship of our families. Now, let's go back to chapter 5 very, very briefly here. We go back to chapter 5 right from the beginning. Paul had called us to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to his own Father, who is God. All these family terms are given to us. The Lord is explaining to us the relationship of the triune Godhead, to use a theological term, or the Trinity, as you would have heard it, no doubt, before. That the triune Godhead is, is God in three persons of equality, but for us to grasp the nature and the roles and the difference in the, in the distinct offices, that it's been communicated to us as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You say, well, we don't have a Holy Spirit in our family, but also the scripture says that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The comforter, the Holy Spirit, has come to be present with us in that same familial kind of terminology. Family terms were given to us for our benefit to see the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And all of these family aspects are on heavy display in the Trinity. So we look no further than God's own family, his own dealings with the family for us to know what is being asked of us or even being made available to us. If you say as a child, you're like, I'm not sure what obedience and honor looks like towards a father, then we look to Christ. We see that in Jesus, he had even told uh, those that were watching him do all that he was doing back in John 14. He says, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. That's not the only statement he makes, but it's one of the key ones in which I am approaching this as a child would his father. I'm watching the example that my dad is leaving me. I'm following in his footsteps and I'm doing everything that I'm doing because I love him. 
Or as a parent, we might say, well, I'm not sure what he's getting at when it comes to discipline and instruction. And especially when he said, don't provoke to anger, what does that really look like? So we have our example, our perfect father, God the father. Jesus had even told his audience in trying to do a comparison here. He says, in uh, I say trying, in doing a comparison, Jesus didn't try anything. Verse 11, he says, if you then who are evil, just all of us who are not God, imperfect, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So the inference there is that God is perfect. He's a great father. So if you're asking him for what you need, he's going to give it and he's going to give it well. He'll be spot on with his gift to you because that's what a good father does. The writer of Hebrews then cautions us in chapter 12 and he says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Because while he is a good gift giver, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter in whom he receives. So we're getting this picture, father, son, we're seeing how he's done all of this perfectly, how Jesus has done all of this perfectly. And so when, when Paul says, this is how you do it, we say, well, at least we've got more than an example. We have a God who lives inside of us, enabling us to do this. So how, how do we imitate God? How do we honor Paul's words back from chapter five? And again, I love that Paul is starting off with kids in this because are we seeing a theme here? He starts off with wives when he's going to talk about the marriage relationship. Why? Because they were disregarded in terms of learning. Because they were insignificant in culture when it came to these weighty matters of God. So Paul says, "Uh, no, wives count too. So I have some instruction for them. We have flipped that upside down. And I'm saying this for the benefit of the repetition, for the benefit of those who haven't heard this before. But we have flipped this upside down in our culture. And we've looked at Paul's words as being dismisses of women, um, oppressive of women. But he was the first, if you will, in this context to acknowledge their significance and say, no, they're part of the mission too. So they have clear instructions. They also can bring glory to their God. This isn't just a man's thing. So do you get the point of bringing up children before parents now? In in a society where kids were not only supposed to be seen and not heard, but probably not even seen. Provided for, yeah, okay, but still, we've got adult things to do. We've got more important things to do. And especially in a culture which which uh, prided themselves on having the freedom to live any way they wanted, they saw children as often a hindrance to that freedom. So Paul is saying, uh, kids, listen, it's your turn now. I want your ears to, to, to perk up in the, in, the, in the temple, in the synagogue, because I have a message for you too. We're not dismissing you. We're not overlooking you just because you're down here. We're actually stooping down and getting on your level because you have a part to play in this. Something I said a couple weeks ago, the only reason why we are able to be offended as a culture at what seems like Paul's dismissal of women or children or something, the only reason why we're offended is because the gospel has brought us so far as a society to care about these things. So when we see that it is actually his intent all along, we see the Lord's plan in all of this. So he says to them, in a sense, metaphorically stooping down to the level of children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
So Paul is saying you need to obey for a couple of reasons. One, because it's natural law. It's the order of things. It's, it's right to do what we said earlier. It's obvious. If you look around and you see, okay, a child is born with no resources, no availability to, to figuring things out on their own, no skills yet or anything, it's quite obvious that you will do better, you will live longer if you obey the ones who are left in charge of you. That's the natural order of things. But then, as we talked about our culture, swings on a pendulum, right? Some time ago, probably somewhere around Dr. Spock's writing and everything, the pendulum swung over to be like, maybe they don't know what's best for them. Maybe these parents need to get off their high horse and think they can lead these little infants around and stuff. And maybe it's time for the kids to start taking charge of their own destiny, as though somehow it isn't the most cruel thing that we can do for them. No, it's, it's obvious, it's, it's natural that the younger need to cling to the older. They need to lean and draw on the experience of those who have lived longer and have learned a few things. So as we hear this voice in our culture today that says, leave it up to the kids, let them make these decisions, especially the life-altering ones and the things that they can't come back from and all that sort of stuff, that's good for them. It allows them to express themselves. We need to start hearing warning signs that say we are doing damage to these children. They can't know what's best for them. I don't know if you remember when you were their age. I know I do. And all the things I thought I knew, it's not that I didn't have the confidence that I knew it was best for myself. I was so wrong. Fortunately, I had people love me enough to step into those things and not allow me to be all that I felt free to be. So Paul says, this is why you obey, which means to hear under, to sit under, to recognize that this instruction and this is coming from above me and coming down to my level. So he's saying, I want you to do something that looks up to those who are responsible for you. And, and it's that posture of respect. And it's that posture of honor. It's that posture of, of need. Paul says, I want you to hear under. Not to think you can be at the same eye level to challenge them. Or to dismiss and I'll get around to it when I get around to it. It's a looking up that's saying, okay, what do you have for me? So Paul says, obey because it's right. Obey because it's also commanded of the Lord. He says to honor your father and mother, which means simply to highly regard them. To show them the respect. And I understand the further we get down this line of bad parenting and lack of resources and poor attempts and addictions and all these sorts of things. Just like the wife who is trying to show respect for a husband who can't seem to find his way out of a paper bag. That children are often left in that same boat of saying, you're telling me to respect my parents, but they're just living for themselves. They're neglecting me. They're they're leaving me behind. And those things need to be mourned. Those things need to be a challenge to us to figure out how to help and support. But it doesn't say in the text, if your parents are worthy of it. So we've got a challenge here. It doesn't say to a wife, show your husband respect only if he's worthy of it, because then it wouldn't be submission. It wouldn't be obedience. It would just be agreement at that point. So Paul is saying that we obey by adjusting our actions. But when he's talking about honor, he's saying adjusting our attitudes. 
This is where it gets to be more a thing of the heart because you can obey on the outside, right? Like, like the kid who says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? That's what lives within us, a heart of rebellion. And so we might be able to go along with it on the outside, but we don't engage our hearts in the action. So Paul is saying to try to lean into trust when it comes to your parents' instruction. And that might be difficult to do, but think about it. If you're a a child living in your parents' house or even after you've left the house or you're an adult and they're still uh, guiding you or expecting certain things of you and it's difficult sometimes to show them that respect, remember that just by virtue of being alive longer than you, there's experience there. That in some way, even if doing things wrong produces some wisdom, that they have wisdom in which they might be speaking from. Or maybe your parents are attempting to care and are terrible at it, but you can at least respect the fact that in their own way, they're trying to do something. They're just not really good at it. Sometimes it helps just to think about the weight of responsibility, even if they're not acknowledging it. But sometimes thinking back and saying, that's a really hard position to be in. Why is it that all of our kids get so much more appreciative of the parenting they have when they have their own children? Because they're recognizing there was a lot of responsibility there. And maybe my parents didn't have all the answers that I have now or they didn't have the best techniques. But I'm starting to, to cue in on or to relate to the weight of responsibility that they were carrying. So Paul says this is the first commandment, not necessarily the first in order. I tried studying this for a while, and I don't know if it's beneficial to break this down for us this morning. But basically summing it up to say that Paul is saying that it goes much better for you if you if you strive to show honor and respect, far better than if you don't, right? And in the time, there was a promise to Israel saying that you would inherit the land, you would dwell in the land longer, and that's kind of changed for us. We as the church are not the ones trying to go inhabit or inherit a territory on this earth, but we want to have spiritual impact. We want to have longevity in our families, in our church culture. We want to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying that if we raise a generation of children who are showing honor and respect to their parents, then that will continue forward. So now he talks to parents where he had to talk to children to bring them up to the level of being a part of the mission. Now he's saying to authoritarians, listen, I want you to bring this down to a level of caring. In other words, do what I just did and get down in the faces of your kids in order to relate to them. So now he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the, dis- in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And and I know sometimes when we hear don't provoke to anger, we focus on the anger and we say, so does that mean I can never anger my children? Not necessarily. It doesn't mean that we'll never upset them because we know that our kids, as adorable as they are, as brilliant as they are, as just such the light of our lives, they are wicked little sinners. You need to remember that. Wah, 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 they're so cute. Give me what I want. If I could murder you right now, I would. That's what all that wah, wah, wah is. We think it's adorable. So Paul is saying, don't aggravate what is already inside them. Don't go out of your way to stoke that fire. 
Don't make that heart of a rebel desire to really fume and, and throw it out there. Don't worsen the situation. And so I, I was coming across a, a pretty helpful list this week. Um, I, I found with uh, John MacArthur. I just want to read through a number of the, uh, the possible ways in which we provoke our kids. Let me read some of these and see if any of them land. If you're not sure, uh, I've given notes this morning. I think I've included this list because I thought, felt like it would be good for us as parents. If you hear something that perks your interest, go back this week, pray through it, ask the Lord, Lord, do inventory on my heart. Do I do this? If so, when, how, how does it show up? So, uh, again, John MacArthur says that often we smother our children. We would call that today helicopter parenting. We're always close by, can't let them experience any dangers, can't let them get into trouble on their own or anything. We're going to make sure we've padded them, protected them, secured them from all harm and, and threat. That has a tendency, most often, to produce an angry response because it's very stifling. I can't move, I can't breathe as the kid. We're showing favoritism. There might be multiple siblings, and it's like, why can't you do as good as this one? Or it might be your friends. If it's a single child home or something, like, why can't you be more like? Or you don't even know, always say that. I think parents are getting smarter with not saying that. But it's in the way that you look forward to being in their presence. You celebrate everything they're good at and that sort of thing. That child knows, well, you don't act like that way towards me. Or maybe you're hyper-focused on performance or the outcomes of things. This is our biggest trap, I think, as parents, is we want to see our kids produce certain tangible, achievable results. And we make that the be-all, end-all, and instead we forget about the process along the way. I've said to my kids over and over and over again, all growing up, it hasn't been about, I want you to go to the best school. I want you to land the best job. I want you to make the most money. It's been about the character and the perseverance and the attitude they have and the caring for others along the way. If they land that big job and get that big house, good. Then I have my retirement plan set, but I don't care about that. What I care about is the type of people they're becoming. And so that becomes more the focus rather than on the performance or the outcomes. Maybe we give in to, we discourage them. We don't encourage them. Maybe we, we pile on them instead of telling them some of the things that we've seen that they're doing well. You know how hard it is to remember to compliment something that went right when it's an expectation? And every once in a while, just that rewarding, that kind of, hey, I know you're working hard. I know you're doing a good thing there. To remember to do that. <clears throat> Or a lack of sacrifice. Maybe it's all about you. Maybe it is about getting the boat instead of taking care of the kids, all that sort of thing. That there isn't a lot of sacrifice. Your kids don't see you giving up anything of yourself in order to provide for them. This next one, I think, is a big one. And it's a, it's a nuanced one. It's not real easy to figure out what he's talking about here. But a lack of pace, what I would call being age-appropriate. Um, every family is going to be different on the things that trigger them and the things that you'll allow kids to do, not do, see, not see, that kind of thing. We have um, wrestled with this all throughout the generations and stuff that we have, and they don't seem to stop, so we're always relearning this and trying to get better at it. But we have age-appropriate milestones in our family where rather than saying we're going to protect them from all things forever, we just say, but can't we protect them while they're 10? Why do they have to know 15-year-old things when they're 10? That's why in the small house they don't get smartphones. Because smartphones, well, not, not right away, when they're teenagers and especially when they can pay for them themselves. Um, I'm getting on a hobby horse soapbox, sorry. 
But, but what does the internet do? It says, grow up, carry more burden, expose your eyes and your mind to things that you're not ready for. So we've done just what we can to say, they're just not ready for that. We're not going to protect them from that forever. And we, we shouldn't, but to do things at an age appropriate level, using love as a reward gets us in trouble rather than the thing that I'm able to give, supposed to give. Instead, I make you earn it. A physical or verbal abuse, so much has been said about abusing our kids that there isn't much more I could add to that other than it just angers the heart of God. I mean, doesn't Jesus say it'd be better for a millstone to be tied about your neck and you thrown into the depths of the sea than for you to harm one of these little ones? If you want to know what God's heart is on the abuse of children, you don't have to look too far to see that. But discipline and this instructing them in the Lord is one that requires balance. Sometimes if we go too far down the strict path, we're not allowing them to have any experiential growth. Or if we kind of have no rules, no guidance, they'll figure it out on their own. Then we're not giving them the guidance they need before they're smart enough to figure it out. So isn't parenting a bit of a difficult challenge that there isn't a black and white to all of this? And that's why it requires wisdom. The takeaway from this is to be reminded of the importance of what God built into uh, uh, the little community called a family and why we parents need to be the ones, as Paul says, to bring them up. That it isn't the responsibility of somebody else to do a good job with them. It is our responsibility to bring them up because they desperately need it. I think this is adorably illustrated in a movie back from the early 2000s, a Jimmy Neutron movie. I even forget what the title of it is. But we all watched it with the kids and I saw what they were admitting on screen and I was like, oh, someday... I'm going to use this as a sermon illustration. So about 20 years later, I finally have a reason. It's about a couple minute clip and I want you to see this, but to set it up, the kids have just discovered Jimmy Neutron's a bit sci-fi. They've just discovered that all the adults and all the parents have been vanished. Some, some kind of alien thing they think or something. All the parents are now gone. What are kids going to do, right? They're going to party. The next 24 hours is just like doing all the things that kids, and it's hysterical. It's not part of the clip. I apologize. It would be funny to watch. But all the things kids can invent to do because no adult is telling them they can't or it isn't possible. And they're freaking out and having a great time. They're under the slushy machine, you know, holding their mouths open. They're surfing in the halls of their school. Even when there's no water, they add water to the halls of the school. All this kind of stuff. Great, great party. But then kids realize we're kids. We need our parents for things, and that's where this clip picks up. So let's watch that for just a couple minutes. Morning, daughter. Oh, my head. What a night. Uh, I'm stuck now. I, I couldn't have enough. Uh, okay, one more. I'm going to have one more, and then that'll be it. What a battle. Are there any survivors? Help me. Uh, I remember my first time. Shake uh, it off, Neutron. <laughs> I gotta get home. Mom and Dad might be back by now. Come on, Goddard.
in the aftermath of yesterday's mom and dad are gone celebrations. Here's Courtney Tyler. <laughs> what started as an awesome day has become like a real bummer. Somebody! I don't know how to make lunch! Somebody hold me! I was playing on the theater daughter, and the next thing I knew, I was on the ground, and my knee hurt! <clears throat> Reports of tummy aches, alleys, and constipation have reached epidemic numbers over the past few hours with little indication of slowing down. And, and so we were going to see who could eat the most cotton candy. <laughs> and I won. <laughs> I won my mommy. So, there you have it. I want my mommy, too. <laughs> Mom? Dad! What kind of parents... <laughs> Sorry, that's my level of education. That's what you get. I want to wrap this up, but I just want to emphasize this point. That it is not up to any other institution to take care of our kids the way that we are called to take care of them, that we are the ones being called to take initiative and show responsibility. I won't go on a rant, but we all know that the uh, age-old battle amongst believers is what school choices are available to us. Do we homeschool them? Do we Christian school them? Do we public school them? And we talk so much about what those institutions' flaws are or strengths or weaknesses, all three of those options have strengths and weaknesses. There is no perfect model of someone else taking care of our kids. In, fa in fact, what we do is we come back to Paul's words and we realize he's not talking about what schools should be doing. And there are dangers and things that we need to be wise about and point out. But I feel like the church has had the scapegoat of picking on institutions as, so, as though somehow they're failing our kids. When God in his mercy and his wisdom has called us to be the ones to take care of them. It, it, there are nuances to this and there are some qualifications. But for the most part, which of those three, whichever of those three choices you pick for for educating your children, if you're not the parent that God's calling you to be, all three of those options will have similar weaknesses. If you are being the invested parent that God is calling you to be and being cautious and careful with these things, then those all three of those options could end up being a great blessing to your children or your family. But it requires patience and, and honesty with ourselves on what we can and can't handle, what we should or shouldn't be doing, all because we are taking our responsibility to care for our kids as our ultimate priority in this regard. I was curious this week as I was thinking about the fact that, you know, we've been blessed to have um, students from uh, a secular uh, college, our local um, college here that would not claim to be trying to raise our children up in godliness. 
and I reached out to several of our students um, from Colby in particular and and asked them if they would give me some responses to some simple, straightforward questions. This is not scientific. This isn't a huge sample size, but I asked several questions um, to just help us understand what it is that either aided or hindered them to be able to pursue their relationship with the Lord, despite the fact that mommy and daddy's not sitting there watching you, making you that kind of thing. How does that happen? So the first question I ask is, would you, would, label, would you label your faith as personal or would it be more like a response to some family pressure or guilt that you might be feeling? And, and all of them or most of them would agree that there really wasn't a lot of pressure put on them to have to be a certain type of, say, Christian or uh, someone who a churchgoer or something. But most of them were actually encouraged to do so and they were encouraged to do so in a way that gave them some independence. And again, I'm not representing everybody that calls in this room that calls himself a student. But, uh, but the, rea- the reality was that most could say that our parents gave us their encouragement, their, their wishes for us, and shaped those kinds of things, but did not make it a demand or somehow tied it to like, you know, you, I'll only pay for your tuition or something if you do it that way or something. Then the question was, well, what influence has your upbringing bringing or your family had on your desire to grow in Christ? And again, varying responses and things, but there were some common threads. And that common thread was the greatest influence our parents could have on us. And many of them would say that our parents did have on us, even if it was like a, a single situation where one parent was a believer and the other one wasn't or something, was the, um, was the encouragement or the influence of example that that seemed to matter the most. And this is something my wife and I have talked about for a long, long period of time because we both went to Christian school. We were both saturated with Christian culture. And we saw so many of our friends, once they could get out of the house at 18, they left God behind. They had no interest in church and everything. What was it about our experience that didn't cause us to want to do that? And so many times we've come back to the fact that a lot of kids would just say, well, my parents were two different people. They would be all shiny Christian-y and stuff in church, and then they held no standards for us at home. They showed us no ways in which we go about doing this and how to survive in the world in which we're going in and stuff. And so it was really important to the, the respondees that I heard from that role model was really helpful in that regard. The last question I asked was, would you say that you were more prepared for the world ahead or were you more isolated or protected from it? And that, that response was a little bit varied. That there was an attempt to prepare especially from a Christian perspective on the things of which, you know, the faith and the matters of the scriptures and everything, but even a little bit further could have, could have gone with, but this isn't acceptable to the world in which you're walking in. This isn't the way that the culture that you're going into will see these things. They will not share your values. They will not encourage your commitments and your efforts in that regard. So to have even had a little bit more preparation along that way to help them understand just because you're going into a place that isn't going to encourage your Christian growth, it doesn't have to be the death knell in your faith. And many of them would say that they were prepared in a lot of ways from their, by their parents, even some of the unwittingly uh, uh, preparing them for that. But again, it was a heavy emphasis on the fact that the Lord had led them into that uh, process and gave, and gave them, for the most part, parents that desired to see them be okay and succeed in that environment. That parents would help them engage their faith in the world they're walking into rather than just keeping them out of it. 
let me just wrap it up by saying this, that God has given us a plan. God's plan for all of the watching humanity around us was to demonstrate his strength, to demonstrate his perfection, his forgiveness, his invitation that all who hear his voice would receive him. His plan was to demonstrate that all through these flawed relationships that you and I engage in, which is just mind boggling. We have Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of all those things. He's the perfect head. He's the perfect submissive partner. He's the perfect obedient one. He's the perfect child rearer, if you will. He's all of those things. All of that perfection is in Jesus. So God then gives us an, an invitation to embrace him as the payment for our sin, rather than thinking that we can somehow match those efforts and do it religiously by saying, see, God, aren't you happy with me? I can do it as good as Jesus. That was never the plan. As God's people, we we receive this salvation. We humbly ask for it, knowing we can't pay for it ourselves. And then we honor this salvation by living it out before others as best we can, by being husbands who are sacrificially leading loving and learning about our wives by being wives who are supportive and patient, submissive partners towards our husbands by being children who are showing our parents their proper and due honor and respect and by obeying their commands and by being parents who are patient with our kids, being direct with them, nurturing them in guidance and care and discipline and instruction. This is the privilege we have as God's people. And it's the picture of the God that we serve. This is why our calling to this family is a testimony to the world around us. You didn't think you were an evangelist, did you? You didn't think you had the best message for the world to hear, but God has said that as you live this out through your families, you put his glory and his salvation on display. And that's what we pray for, for the families of faith. Would you please stand and let's pray together. Lord God, as always, I thank you for your people's patience and their attentive ears and their engaged minds. And I pray, Lord, that you would comfort their hearts. I pray, Lord, that what they heard from you this morning was one of encouragement and a step forward rather than a beating up and an inability to rewind the clock and make the best use of all the mistakes that we've made or to somehow erase the memories of the failures that we've had or even to just wallow in some of the pain of those of us that were brought up in situations where our parents didn't do any of these things and didn't look out for us. Lord, all of that is the stuff that you redeem, that you buy back because of your grace. So you've given us our marching orders to go forward, Lord. You've given us our steps of obedience and our obligations, but you've also, Lord, given us this elevated mission. You've called us to this task of representing you. And so we thank you for that, Lord. All we want to be is faithful to it. Pray, Lord, that you would empower us by your spirit. Help us to pick the one or two things that we could do and improve on, Lord, and make that our calling in life and to represent you the best we can as you give us the grace to do that. Thank you for being the perfect dad. Thank you for being the ultimate parent that we never go without provision, that we never lack for love, care, and concern. Thank you, Lord, for how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.